0: Hey, 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 hey! listen to my podcast every day. Hello, and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. Each episode, we'll look at someone's first page, and I'll go, Ugh, uh, and point at things I want to be killed. So it's kind of like Facebook. Today I saw an advert for a first novel competition where one lucky unpublished author can win a thousand quid if their novel gets picked. A thousand quid! Wow! And then I read the entry terms and conditions and it said the entry fee was £25. People who say creative writing can't be taught tend to be middle class. What's more, they tend to be middle class people who've benefited in all sorts of ways from the invisible influence of social status and money. Masterclasses, MA courses, professional critiques, access to books, the time to read books, the time to write, the space to write. All of these things cost money. And now, even competitions, supposed hotbeds for new talent, require a significant investment. There are so many ways in which the current system excludes people from participating fairly. I found, and still find, writing incredibly hard. I've only just scraped through intact, and I have had all the above advantages and support. How many talented authors and diverse voices are we losing because of this? How many of the obstacles are nothing to do with talent and perseverance at all, but cold, ugly, dosh? When I mentioned this online, someone said, well, maybe it's a good thing people get dissuaded. There's a lot of dross out there already. But improving access doesn't decrease quality it improves it by making the system more of a meritocracy. I don't think this is something that gets solved by shrugging and acknowledging, yeah, shit, isn't it? Or by angrily denouncing middle-class authors, briefly satisfying though that might feel. Too many of us mistake shitty public tantrums for protest and mean-spirited sniping for meaningful social change. So, I'm going to think about it, but it would be good to come up with some positive contributions we could all make that help level the playing field and help connect us, the readers, with all those voices we've been denied. Right, that's my pandering lefty spiel out the way. On to today's extract. If you want to read it, it's on my website, timclaireperk.co.uk, in the show notes. It's untitled, and it's by a person going by the name of Dan. Oh, my name's Tim Clare. I like the poor people. I didn't realise I'd overslept until after I'd woken up. Flailing my way out of my bedclothes and into the bathroom, I cursed myself for forgetting to check my watch in my dreams. It was the date of the great village fate. As I hopped down Hicklemore Road attempting to apply trousers to my legs, I briefly wondered why my alarm clock hadn't gone off before making a mental note to purchase an alarm clock. "'Morning, vicar!' called the greengrocer as I sprinted past. "'I had no time for his pleasantries, so I didn't return his greeting. "'Also, since I'm not a vicar, there was a good chance he was addressing somebody else. "'The fate was already in full swing when I arrived, apart from the full swing band, "'which hadn't started yet. No wonder. "'They could hardly start without their lead saxophonist. "'Come on, Dennis!' shouted the band leader, Gordon. "'Where's your sax?' I clasped my hands to my head in exasperation, a manoeuvre I was able to accomplish injury-free thanks to the absence of my Boucher 400 saxophone case. That's okay, said flaxen-haired Melissa. He can play mine. I'll play clarinet instead. She handed me her alto as I sat down next to the flaxen-haired and now sax-impaired Melissa. Good, said Gordon, glaring at me before turning to the rest of the band. The rest of the band were sitting in the same general area as me, so he didn't really need to turn, but he did anyway. Gentle humour, eh? I'm placing both of those words in separate pairs of inverted commas. Humour is subjective, of course, much as it pains me to trot out such a hoary and bespider-webbed cliché. But the success of comedians, comic novels and sitcoms which not only fail to make you laugh but leave you unable to imagine ever laughing again are proof enough that the maxim holds true. I'm not going to do a lengthy and stumbling sermon on the instability of comedy and the diachronic and synchronic shifts that make it such a wriggly, compelling quality to locate in writing. Sorry to those of you who are planning to masturbate to this podcast. But please take this as an extended mea culpa. Comedy is subjective except a cheeky gnome doing a poo in a top hat, replacing it on the hat stand, then winging to camera. and We can't all write about that, can we? I didn't realise I'd overslept until after I'd woken up. Hello Dan, this is an example of a garden path sentence. It starts in one place, it sets up an expectation, then whoops, it leads us somewhere else. Which, come to think of it, is not like, that's not how a garden path works. A garden path isn't full of unexpected twists and turns. It just leads from the gate along the garden to the front door. So garden bar sentence is possibly one of the most inappropriately named tropes in the world. But nonetheless, I digress. And if you think about the central qualities I bang on about in Death of a Thousand Cuts, which is what you're listening to, this seems to satisfy a lot of them. Simple language. You introduce a protagonist in the first line. You've thought about the primacy recency effect so that the most interesting part of the sentence comes at the end. So why am I so monumentally indifferent to it? Well, for a start, it's all in the abstract. There are no concrete nouns in this sentence and the verbs are relatively intangible. Realise, had, overslept, woken. So you're presenting us with a concept, not a scene. Secondly, well, yes, it has the broad structure of a joke in the same way a human turd has the broad structure of a croissant. But what's the actual joke? That he's stating the obvious. I don't mean to sound uncharitable. Almost any joke feels similarly brittle when you joylessly demand, what's so funny about this? What is funny about someone taking a rugby ball to the ghoulies or a snob getting socially disgraced or a pun? I've done years of stand-up and I've lost count of the number of times I've analysed what I'm about to publicly say and thought, why would anyone laugh at this? What's the joke? in a horrible cold sweat and then sometimes they do sometimes they don't sometimes it's an intonation thing weird larves bloom in the wasteland between jokes Loves? Loves isn't a word weird loves. i'm gonna come here to the larves shack to get some larves out of you all i can say is this feels like a swing and miss A palpable attempt at a joke with no punch or content. It's like saying I only realised the soup was hot when I burnt my mouth with it. I mean, yeah... I guess so fucking what? I suppose there's an admirable honesty in a first line that basically says to the reader, this novel is going to feel like being cornered by someone's drunk dad at a wedding reception. Next line. Flailing my way out of my bedclothes and into the bathroom, I cursed myself for forgetting to check my watch in my dreams. No, he didn't. Nobody would do that unless they were mentally ill, which your narrator is allowed to be, but... I don't think that's what you were shooting for. Having said comedy is subjective, I'm about to rant. Bear in mind it's not at you, wonderful, sweet, inherently valuable Dan. It's at this piece and at this sentence which was produced by you but does not represent you. Comedy is truth. Don't doodle all over mundane actions in an attempt to jazz them up, especially don't lie good comedy has stakes. If we just have an idiot wittering at us, there's nothing to engage with. I don't believe him or in him, and so it's not funny. It was the date of the great village fate. I think day is better than date, which feels weirdly clinical. What I will say for this sentence is that it's clear and it sets up the situation quickly. It's unspectacular and a bit workmanlike, but it does a job. As I hopped down Hicklemore Road, attempting to apply trousers to my legs, I briefly wondered why my alarm clock hadn't gone off before making a mental note to purchase an alarm clock. Utterly fuck this guy. I'm actively feeding for him to get ripped apart by wolves. He left the house with no trousers on. No, he didn't. No one does that. That's stupid and not stupid in a funny way. Not stupid in a come-peer-into-this-fun-house-mirror-reflection-of-human-foible's way. Just stupid dull. you might as well have had the wheel of a unicycle extend out his bum crack and pilot him all the way to his destination it's completely divorced from real life seriously dan this man leaves the house with no trousers on can't distinguish between dreams and reality and thought he had set an alarm clock he never owned this isn't a cozy story of flustered incompetence it's a harrowing diary of a degenerative brain disorder "'Morning, vicar!' called the greengrocer as I sprinted past. I had no time for his pleasantries, so I didn't return his greeting. Also, since I'm not a vicar, there was a good chance he was addressing somebody else. This is a garden path sentence mixed with a pullback and reveal. We're set up to expect one thing. "'Oh, our expectation was misplaced! He fooled us! How droll! "'Now please excuse me while I teaspoon out my eyes!' Actually, this is my favourite joke in the whole piece. I suppose you do successfully wrong foot us, but my main issue is with one word. So. I had no time for his pleasantries, so I didn't return his greeting. No, he didn't return the greeting because he knew the greengrocer wasn't talking to him. That so is a lie. Because the narrator doesn't play fair with us, the joke is less funny. Here's my favourite pull back and reveal joke of all time. It's by Emo Phillips, and I'm not going to do his voice or delivery, which are such an essential part of his clown... I'll just read you the text flatly with my apologies. The weirdest thing happened. I'm walking down the street and I say to myself, my gosh, that's Jimmy Peterson. I haven't seen him since third grade. So I, I slapped him on the back and said, how's it going, you old moron, you drunken reprobate? And he falls down and starts screaming, Wah mummy, mummy. And I realised, wait a second. If that's Jimmy Peterson, he would have grown up too. Now, of course, that's not very realistic and leaves out information to mislead us, and it's about someone assaulting a child, but it is funny. And he doesn't lie to us, he just gives us bits of information and lets our brains fill in the rest, incorrectly. So, in fact, it's us who did the lying. Which is great, right? The fate was already in full swing when I arrived, apart from the full swing band, which hadn't started yet. No wonder, they could hardly start without their head saxophonist. So, a pun. Yeah, I mean... You use full swing in two different senses here. That is something you've done. At least we learn something about the narrator, or at least it's implied, which makes us wearily brace for another open bunny quotes, joke, close bunny quotes. Come on, Dennis, shouted the bandleader, Gordon. Where's your sax? I clasped my hands to my head in exasperation, a manoeuvre I was able to accomplish injury-free thanks to the absence of my Boucher 400 saxophone case. Uh yeah this endless pounding volley of set up undercut expectation over and over is by now making me dreamily contemplate the warm embrace of oblivion the density is such that ironically your undercutting of expectation has become the dreary norm it's just it's like trying to have a conversation with someone who keeps doing armpit farts then braying with laughter That's okay, said flaxen-haired Melissa. He can play mine. I'll play clarinet instead. She handed me her alto as I sat down next to the flaxen-haired and now sax-impaired Melissa. This was the joke where I actually began to plot my murderous spree across the British Isles. Where it would start. The saxophone I would use as a weapon. The puns I would scream at my victims as I bludgeoned them to death. Every time they tried to fight back from lying prone, I'd yell, punching up isn't funny, punctuating each word with a crunching downward thrust of the saxophone. My crimes would be of such gravity and magnitude that no one would ever make wind instrument jokes again. And I think that would be a net gain to humanity. I'm exaggerating, of course, Dan. I would never deliberately hurt anyone and I hope I haven't hurt your feelings. I'm sure you are a charming human being with a generous wit. However, sadly, that wit has not translated into this first page, which sometimes happens. It happens to me all the time. Don't worry about it. Humour arises from character, not an endless procession of tricksy mid-sentence vaultfasses. There's only so much, I took my seat, much to the protestation of Jeremy, who was sitting on it, style hijinks a reader can take before they simply lose the will to live and expire. And the humour, unless it's a... Godlike, transcendent, once-in-a-generation-level hilarity can only be part of the package. Character feeds into story, so there's more going on. Something to draw us through the book. I know you can make this work, Dan, but you need to rethink your strategy. Maybe buy or borrow from the library five or six great comic novels from a variety of authors and a variety of eras. See how they did it. What works for you and what drags. I I really recommend, although she's not purely a comic novel... Novelist. I am a big fan of Nancy Mitford. Uh, things like Love in a Cold Climate. Um, I just think I just think she's very funny. I think Uncle Matthew is one of the funniest comic characters I've read in 20th century British fiction, and I really, really recommend her stuff. If you like doing those funny kind of comedy of manners with an English twist. Just basically use a variety of comic techniques, not just the same old Whoops, I've turned into a marrow. And that's it for this episode. If you'd like to submit, please check out the link in the show notes to our submission guide. You can also send me questions, comments and criticism via the contact me link on the right of my website, timclarepoet.co.uk. I hope if you're enjoying this, you're sharing it so that others may suckle at the grisly teat of my putative wisdom and ingest some of the sweet, sweet milk of robust compositional principles. If you're not sharing it, are you okay with that? Can you live with that? Does that seem fair to you? Follow your heart. Until next time, you're a good person. Be kind to other people.